Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Schreiber. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast and more specifically, or rather more geographically, to Tennis Podcast Towers, Lounsenden. That's how I'm interpreting the street sign that I recently followed. David, have I have I got that anywhere near right? Well, the, the problem is I live basically here and I've never heard of it before. Uh, so we've we've taken a turn that I wasn't expecting and we've ended up on another farm. Yes. Because uh, myself and Matt have come up to David's neck of the woods for, well, for meetings, really, and for recording this podcast and for, well, this is the time of the year when David offloads the many, many ideas in his head and we discuss whether any of them are feasible (laughs) in the real world. Uh, And we can't wait, Matt. I love coming up here for meetings and I'm, I'm just praying that that Wednesday's weather forecast doesn't come to fruition because otherwise we may be in another Shrewsbury flood situation. Yes. But David's promised to rescue us in his in his big car. <laughs> yeah, thoughts and prayers for my uh, my Honda Civic over the course of the next few days. We're in a rather more rural location than I was expecting. So rural that we have uh, a group of sheep collecting outside our window and Billy Jean, who is currently enjoying cuddles from David... Uh, has got uh, both eyes firmly fixed on those sheep. So if you do hear any barking over the course of the next hour, you'll know exactly what is going on. Let's move on to the tennis, shall we? And let's start in Doha, where it is a first title of 2024 for world number one, Iga Svantec. It felt all week like she was on a collision course with Elena Rabakina in the final, and so it proved Svantec beating Rabakina 7-6, 6-2 in that final with Rabakina having led with a double break 4-1 in the opening set. She took a, a medical timeout for a, a Raducanu-esque self-inflicted injury whilst while serving David and, and kind of derailed herself therein and never quite recovered. Kind of allowed Svantec the opportunity to, to find her feet in the match, find her find her composure I suppose in the conditions it was an incredibly windy day in Doha wasn't it and I do think of Iga Svantec as the best the best wind player in the world with those 
those tiny footsteps that she takes. I, I associate Iga Svantec so closely with squeaky shoes, tiny, tiny squeaks of shoes, trainers on uh, on the court. And you could hear that so much in um, in those incredibly windy conditions. And she was a very deserving, in the end, dare I say, comfortable winner against her old nemesis, Rabatkina. So, certainly in the way she accelerated away in the second set, because that looked so unlikely early on. I mean, this was, for the first five games, a carbon copy of several of their other meetings. This was one player who just came out, seeing the ball big, having the, the crispest most beautiful ball strike, the sound of it from Rebecca, and able to deal with the Svantec game. She's she's sort of whipping the ball in in Rebecca's direction with all that topspin on the forehand, and it's having no effect. She's just timing the ball backwards, and she was constantly going cross court to the Svantec forehand, going fast and deep and darting the ball into that side, and that looked like a real tactic of hers. And Ika couldn't really cope with that uh, uh, for the first five games. And yes, I think that that hitting of the leg and having to have it treated, it wasn't a serious injury, but it was it was it took the air out of the balloon for her a little bit. And I think it did discombobulate her a little bit, but the, the, perhaps the most interesting part of it was Svantec went over to her coaching team and spoke to her coach for the entirety of that break. And clearly, whatever was said worked. And and part of that, she said, I was panicking. I was panicking with what was coming my way, and I wasn't really doing any, doing doing the right things to deal with it. And, and whatever was said, what felt like came out of it was she just went into scrapper mode. And And this is a player who I feel like, sometimes comes undone against these big hitters because she doesn't want to be dominated. She wants to do the dominating. She wants to give you all guns blazing. And it's very exciting to watch. And when she's on, she goes and blitzes people one and one But when somebody stands up to her, she sometimes then goes into an error machine. And and this time she didn't. She she Those little squeaky sounds on the shoes that you're discussing... Whilst that's a trademark, it was almost amplified and magnified in this in this instance because she was just making sure she put those extra steps in to get to the ball, make her play more, go toe to toe, but in a different way, and eventually just turn the tables. and And I I actually think that they should both come out of that match feeling pretty good because Rebecca has showed that her top level causes problems for Svantec, and kind of she should have won. Really, she certainly should have won the first set. And yet Svantec turned that around. So I think there's there's something for them both there. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it, actually. I, I mean, I think there should there really ought to be regrets for Rebecca. Quite frankly, she should have won, won that first set. And I mean, it goes without saying that if she wins that first set, it's a different match. I do think it, it's a WTA rule, isn't it? That if you draw blood, you, you have to seek treatment. She... I, I rather suspect she would have quite liked to uh, to power through. The, the, the Billie Jean sound effects you're hearing, by the way, are because David... I asked David to buy her some treats on the way over because I forgot to bring some. And David bought the most enormous pack of Billie Jean's <laughs> favourite treats in the world. And uh, they are in her eye line at the moment. And she's like, I know I've already had three, but can I have some more, please? Uh, and the answer is no. Um <laughs> What was I saying? Rebecca, yes. Uh, 
and that I rather suspect she would have liked to have carried on and stayed in the zone, but it was a bit alarming and not not necessarily the trademark of a top top player how she how the bubble burst after that time how she wasn't able to regroup very quickly and I do think she really let Sviantek off the hook if you've she she lost her three times last year Sviantek she is in her head she's a double breakdown she's on the rope she's she's mentally spiraling you've you've got to put put your foot down got to stamp on her at that point and she did she did the exact opposite and that is that should be a regret and is a bit of a I suppose mental worry for for a back in her but I agree tennis wise I I, I still felt like Rabakina, when she's on, that game is a problem for Sviantek. And I do think think perhaps part of the reason she's panicking is because she's come into this season with a lot of with changes to her game that are specifically designed to combat Rabakina and maybe to a slightly lesser extent Ostapenko. But those kinds of players, and I think particularly Rabakina, because Rabakina is somebody that she's probably going to be expecting to play in in a lot of her biggest matches of this year and of course Sabalenka as well so um yeah I think kind of positives for both is um is a very good way of looking at it I think Sviontek against big hitters is going to be such a just fascinating part of her career like I remember thinking after she beat Collins at the Australian Open how important that felt and then the next match, she goes and loses to Noskova, who's hitting hard and flat. And it was like, oh, well, you, you can't just solve it in, in a match. Like, I think it is always going to be there. But I think it's just really important that she won this one against against kind of her biggest rival in, in that matchup, that head-to-head anyway, because everything else was in her favour here, like the wind. Best best player in the wind, see Cancun of how mm. how she dealt with those conditions so much better than everyone else. I always think of Sviontek in finals. That's kind of the best Sviontek as well. She's got such a good record. And Doha is like she's won it three times in a row. Everything was aligned for her. If she hadn't beaten Rebecca in those conditions, it would have kind of been like, well, when is she going to beat Rebecca? So I just think little by little she's getting better against these big hitters. You know, like, as you've described, that patience that she showed, that composure was way different to what she showed against Ostapenko at the US Open last year. Her sort of commitment to defend and scrap and get behind the ball and all of that, I think, is is improving. Um, But had she taken a loss there, I think that would have been real scar tissue. So I think it's massive for Sviantek that that she won this. I think we can write it off as, oh, just Sviantek winning Doha again, but... Like the manner of it beating Rabatkina, I think I think's big. But at the same time, as you said, Rabatkina, it's not like she's lost her advantage in that head-to-head against Fiontech. Like she ha- she has still got the game to cause her problems. So it just sort of all goes back to what we're always saying: we just want these players to keep playing each other because mm. we just learn a little bit more every time. I just I just love it. Yeah, a more important win for Fiontech yes. than for Rabatkina, I think. Yes. Um, and still, uh, still a fantastic week for Rabakina overall. I mean, still a week that leaves you wondering what on earth happened in Melbourne uh, to 
Anna Blinkova. And I was actually discussing that with um, with my brother this week. He's, he was, this was before the final. He said, tell me Rebecca is not going to win Wimbledon. And I was like, I can't. She's surely the favourite for Wimbledon. And then I went, oh, but the Australian Open just makes me think, just, just puts that asterisk in my mind. But then sometimes weird anomalous things that you can't really draw any patterns or conclusions from do happen and that's not good trade for tennis podcasters is it to just say (laughs) there's a thing that happened can't can't tell you anything about it or tell you what it means it's just a thing that happened um but that sometimes is the case and it's more often the case in women's tennis for I think two main reasons. Number one, they play best of three sets at Grand Slams and there just is more variance in best of three set matches. And number two, um, I I think menstruation makes it more likely that you're going to have the odd freak result. I've got no idea what's going on with Elena Rabakina, whether it's her time of the month uh, in Australia. I'm just making a general point about the fact that again, I don't know why I'm saying this given it's such bad trade for, for tennis podcasters, but Sometimes weird things do happen. But, but I do I, find myself just going around in circles in my brain thinking, but what does it mean? And going, <laughs> it doesn't have to mean anything. I, the thing is, I, I, I think that that is a really important reminder for for me and for probably some, a lot of people listening. Not everybody. There's a lot of people who probably think I don't, uh, the same as you. I don't know whether that's a factor. It may not be one at all. But it may be one, and it is a factor that women have to deal with that men don't. And and actually, I don't think it's a bad thing at all to just remind us ourselves once in a while not to just draw some lazy conclusion based on every condition being equal, because they're not always, are they? And and it it can be that, it can be other things. But yeah, I mean, she didn't look in Australia, in Melbourne, like she has either side of it. Apart from Adelaide, when she was also terrible, but but you know, and and listen, that may be the outstanding thing that she just needs to not do again. Um, but but generally speaking, it's it's a bit like um, Ostapenko against everybody except Azarenka. It's it's just Rubakina's form has been awesome either side. Mm. Uh, other things from Doha. This has all just been biding time, by the way, before we can talk about the Ostapenko Azarenka handshake. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get on to that, should we talk about Pliskova? Because you guys got really into the the Pliskova story mm. this week. The the clues to Doha Dash. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. that's, that's a very good little uh, pithy way of putting it. <laughs> well, it was. It was pretty remarkable, actually. Like, I think it might be the most I've ever been into Karolina Pliskova this this past week. You know, not a player who, you know, I respect the hell out of her career. She had an amazing career, you know, in terms of going to number one and winning so many titles. But, you know, her her brand of tennis, to be honest, has, has, has never excited me. But I found myself absolutely sort of glued to to her story this week because it wasn't just that she'd gone all the way from Cluj to Doha and, and by the way landed on the morning of her first match in Doha she had to I mean she landed I think got a quick bit of sleep and then played her match that evening but it was the manner of her wins like she was a set down twice and came back to win 
uh, won another three setter as well, beat and then beat Naomi Osaka in in two tie breaks, a really high quality match. It was it was just really impressive resilience. It was it was almost like she had a bit of a point to prove like she was just gonna say no I'm, I'm gonna push myself to the absolute extreme here everyone's writing me off because I've, I've how can I possibly win this match I've had no preparation and yet she just kept doing it and I, I found it really impressive and honestly in the last couple of weeks she's pretty much halved her ranking I think um won a title I think we're, we're, again we're seeing the benefits of dropping down a level and winning a load of matches she just had she was winning matches based, I think, on confidence and and feelings of getting a lot of wins recently. It was helping her over the line. when She didn't necessarily have her best tennis, but it was just pretty remarkable, actually. Like a shame and perhaps inevitable that she did eventually just run out of steam and had to had to uh, withdraw, didn't she, ahead of her semi-final that would have been against Fiontech. And that was a real shame, you know, um, and... The point is the tennis schedule shouldn't punish people for doing so well one week and compromising them the next week. You know, that that was a shame and there's a bigger talking point there. But like she made the most of the matches that she did play in uh, in Doha and it was it was it was very impressive. I think um Naomi Osaka would quite like to not face Karolina Pliskova again for a while because that's the second time this year she's mm. uh, she's lost out to her and it was Kind of felt like quite a similar match, like close, but just not close enough. And high level. Yeah. Like again, like both teeing off on the ball. And there was a moment towards the end where Osaka started saving so many match points. And I was reminded of, you know, all the times she's done that previously. And you thought, is she going to, is she going to do it again? Is she going to get out of, get out of jail in this match and, and go on to win it? But honestly, Pliskova was, was too relentless and, and too good, but there were good signs for Osaka in Doha. It was her it was her best tournament so far. I would say that it was kind of a shame for her that she didn't get to play. I think it was her last sixteen mm, against Serenko. She doesn't need walkovers right now. No. She needs matches. So it's the big problem about coming back is you can very easily end up playing four weeks in a row and playing four really good players and just mm. getting no real match routine. And uh, and actually, I, I think that so. I think this was quite a a good step in the right direction. She sort of felt like she was part of the tournament, part of the tour yeah. uh, during this week. And I agree of the Serenko match. I think she probably would have won that. And that's another bit in the tank, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's that bit of match toughness and and everything else. But but I, I was I was encouraged. I didn't see the first match she played against Pliskova at the start of the year, but she was right in this one, and, and it could have turned. Am I right that she's not playing Dubai? Yeah, this she, week she pulled out of Dubai during her run in in Doha. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I misheard that, by the way. You know, at the time, I, I remember during that match, they're saying she can go full out and know that this is the only tournament she's going to play because she's not playing Dubai. I thought they meant Pliskova at the time, <laughs> and and I'm just assuming that. Because Pliskova has had this ridiculous run, you know, and then she withdraws because of injury in the next match. And here she is. I think Pliskova is playing Dubai. Yeah, she's, yeah she's already won a match. And I'm like, <laughs> no. hold yeah. on a minute. I thought she'd pulled out. I'd got the wrong player. <laughs> Look, when you're on a roll, David. Um, 
Right, we have arrived at destination, folks. Uh, Elena Ostapenko has still only lost to one player in 2024, and she's done that three times. She has lost once again to Victoria Azarenka. Now, I commentated Ostapenko's second loss of 2024 to Azarenka, and that was in the third round of the Australian Open. Uh, and it it was a tense match. It was clearly a match between two players that didn't have too much warmth for one another. But I have to say the handshake disappointed me on that occasion. <laughs> In fact, I would say the general level of aggro disappointed me. It was just a sort of quite low quality tennis match with sort of a simmering level of tension that never boiled over into anything funny. Well, <laughs> turns out they were just saving themselves for the, uh, or rather Ostapenko was saving herself uh, for the handshake uh, in their match in Doha, which was once again won by Victoria Azarenka. Uh, would somebody would somebody like to describe, perhaps professional radio commentator David Law to my mm. left, what Yelena Ostapenko did in lieu of a handshake? Well, it got better on on the third watch, I felt, <laughs> because, because my first watch of it, so, I knew it was going to be something special because of the way it had been going long. I mean, Ostapenko's getting an absolute hammering in the first set. Um, the second set's really close, but Azarenka wins again. And just the, the body language of Ostapenko and the reactions to the body language from Azarenka throughout the match have told me where this is going. <laughs> and it's just how severe is it going to get? You know, I've had you two reenact an Ostapenko handshake at Wimbledon of the sort of no-look variety, barely putting that the palm <laughs> up. Well, this one was worse because she walks to the net, she gets there first, and she quite dramatically just points her racket frame in the direction of Azarenka, <laughs> like they used to do four years ago during the height of the pandemic, when you're not allowed to shake hands. <laughs> and, and Azarenka, and, and I, I thought that that was the was the handshake until I went back for a second viewing and realised that Azarenka, upon seeing this outstretched racket, just stopped and looked incredulous and sort of went. Oh, forget this. And just walked <laughs> off and didn't and, even and try then, to and tap then act the racket. Th- act three is uh, is Ostapenko like rolling her eyes as if as if it was Azarenka's act of aggression, like oh well she's refusing to shake my hand then. <laughs> Looking indignant. It was it was five seconds of pure entertainment. Yeah. It, it it's the perfect aggro sweet spot because it is not horrifically unpleasant and unpalatable but it is just wonderfully childish and silly and funny yeah it's just utterly pathetic isn't it it's so good <laughs> something that i'm also finding really funny about this azarenka ostapenko 2024 rivalry is that Azarenka has lost her next match every time <laughs> after beating Ostapenko. It's not like she's in title-winning form. She's just in <laughs> Ostapenko-beating form. And isn't, isn't it just a perfect example of how styles impact mm. matches? Because we've seen Ostapenko smash Igor off the court several times. And we've seen Azarenka absorb the game of Ostapenko every time mm. and manage to beat her. And Quite often, Azarenka, when she faced this Sviantek, as she did in the very next match, couldn't get nearer, really. I mean, I think the first set was close. But, you know, it's it's just one of those things. And, uh, and Azarenka knows how to absorb that game. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful illustration of that that head to head. The WTA tour moves on to Dubai this week. It's another one thousand event, and it is Irina Sabalenka's hotly anticipated return to competition after winning the Australian Open. Uh, Ostapenko and Azarenka in different halves of the Dubai draws. If they're to meet again, looking forward to that be final. In the final. <laughs> Um, Jabir is out of Dubai that knee injury that we discussed last week uh, from Doha that's uh, keeping her out of Dubai I'm glad she's pulled out as, as sad too. as I am for her mm. it's it would have been so tempting to just play mm. particularly there I think and in that part of the world and I think it's it's important that she tries to get to the bottom of this. Well, did we discuss it last week? Yeah, we did. Was that we, a private? Did we, 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 we talked we how upset she looked on the court. And again, you, we you, did, you, you're, yeah. well, you're not 100% sure what that's in relation to, but there were some quotes from her about mm. the knee sometimes being a problem. And, um, you know, it, again, it, it's I think it's important for her because as much as she wants to play well there, her goals have to be higher than that. And she ain't going to reach them if she's in any way 100%, not 100% fit. Uh, Krejcikova, defending champion, is also out of Dubai with oh, a back really? injury. That's that's tough for her, isn't it? I kind of feel like, I just feel like it's a bit tough being Barbora Krejcikova at the moment, you know? Can't really get a fair mm. crack at it. Because I get this feeling she's come out at the start this year really wanting to... To get back amongst it. And she said it was um, Siniakova's decision, hasn't she? Yes. The doubles split. Mm. Yeah. And it makes me sad. Incidentally, Siniakova had a had a good win, didn't she, in uh, Doha, beat, beat Coco Goff. Mm. Yeah, Although Goff that was, was a... was poor. Yeah, Goff really was poor. It was, you know, rinse and repeat of... You, you know, when Goff loses matches, apart from to Sabalenka at the Australian Open that does tend to be what they look like when she when she loses you know the the forehand fell apart quite frankly and it was it was picked apart um and yeah it, it looked pretty bad but I also really don't doubt her ability and probability of just completely bouncing back and being as resilient as ever and and not letting it not letting it rock her. Uh, so that is the WTA uh, tour for last week and looking ahead to this week. The ATP tour has been in three different destinations. Uh, 500 event in Rotterdam, won by Yannick Sinner, unbeaten in 2024. Beat Alex de Menor, 7 He's always beating poor Alex de Menor, isn't he? <laughs> um, is but, it seven out of seven, I think? Yeah, oh. and three three of them very recent um this this i think matt for you Dimino's best performance against best loss against Yannick Sinner <laughs> i think so I, I think he did win a set against Sinner but you know several years ago certainly of the recent ones this was Dimino's best display and you know it's it's tricky isn't it because Dimino is you know he's top 10 player in the world now he's he's such an elite player it's it's almost it's almost a bit patronizing to say oh you, you you did a great job Alex but I really do think that he did I thought he was brilliant in this match and kind of kind of the best thing I can say I guess is that it didn't feel like to me that he was a worse player than Yannick Sinner 
in this match. Like, I didn't look at it and obviously think that there was a huge matchup problem. It was a really close tennis match. There was three points in it in terms of, you know, 79-76 it was at the end. It was so close. He just felt like a worse big match player. Or maybe Yannick Sinner felt like a better big match player, you know, because all the all the key moments right at the end of the first set where Sinner's been a been a breakup and Dimonor breaks him back, 15-minute game, Yannick Sinner ends up sprawled on the court and you think, right, momentum can shift here. It didn't. And it was exactly the sort of thing that I would have probably said about if someone was playing Novak Djokovic. When you think you're going to get the momentum on your side and you don't. And Sinner meant that that was the case. He just broke back in the next game and then and then served it out. And he did similarly in the in the second set when, when Dimonor broke. He just broke him in the very next game. It was it was little moments like that. Sinner, who I don't think had... He didn't have his best level in, in any of his matches, I would say, in Rotterdam. But he was he's raised his floor, hasn't he? And he's got playing with so much confidence. He can manage matches now. He's, he's, he doesn't panic... And he he rode out a lot of big moments and he, he was just he looked like a player who has just leveled up and is now a Grand Slam champion and has learnt to win without his best. And yeah, it was deeply, deeply impressive. He's the first first maiden male Grand Slam champion since Leighton Hewitt to win their next tournament after playing wow. playing a slam. And incidentally I think Darren Cahill is coach of of both of those, um, that's a great start. I mean, that's, that's it's, it's, it's telling. It's, it feels it? impressive. It re- it feels that doesn't surprise me when I hear it because that's how it feels. You know, yeah. like that that is a big deal to go and back that up. Yeah, I mean, winning, not playing your best, winning matches, and by extension, winning titles when you're not playing your best is such an important developmental stage for top players, isn't it? Because how many of Djokovic's slams has he won playing his best? Not many. Not many. Um, Certainly more recently And if, you, as if well. you're going to rack them up, like I wouldn't expect you to win your, unless you're Coco Goff, your first Grand Slam, you're probably, that's probably you playing lights out. But that's part of the evolution of a, of a tennis player, isn't it? That it's just sort of become a winning, winning machine. Yeah. You, you win the right points rather than sort of, as you said about the Dominor match, you know, in terms of the numbers, it was uh, it was all but even, and you know that is it's something that Sinner has nailed in a way that Alcaraz hasn't. The the I mean, not quite winning ugly, but winning not playing your best. Alcaraz efficiently, it, yeah. If I, if it, I mean, we'll come on to talk about Alcaraz and of course Nicholas Jarry in a moment. <laughs> um, but y- Yannickson has got an edge in that department on on Carlos Alcaraz. I still believe Alcaraz is top 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 level is higher but i don't think you win much with your top top level well isn't isn't there a, a comparison there between when you talk of the big three probably people spend more time exclaiming about shots played by roger federer and rafael nadal and yet novak Djokovic has won more than them both and here we have very embryonic stages but we have somebody we 
we jump out of our seats watching more often in Carlos Alcaraz. And yes, at the moment, he's won two Grand Slams, Sinner's won one. But which one of them feels like the more mature, professional, sports person, winning machine? I know people rail against me for saying the word professional, but I think that there is something to that about just that absolute last degree to which Djokovic and Sinner find ways and know when to raise it and know when to knuckle down and not miss. Mm. And and I just think that Sinner is, of all the players out there, is learning the Novak Djokovic recipe. Mm. We will come on to Buenos Aires and, and Alcaraz and uh, the other key results there in a moment. But first, Matt, you've put Talon Greekspool in the agenda this is your you have the floor to talk about Talon Greeks Paul <laughs> well just I was just going to quickly say on like on Alex Dimonor like I know we've talked about that loss there that he took against Sinner but he had a he had a great week in terms of beating Rublev and Dimitrov back to back and I, I just think I always used to think Dimonor had had such a ceiling and he is now okay not Yannick Sinner but he is regularly beating so many of the other top players. He's doing what Sinner does, but at a slightly lower level. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm just really impressed. I, I think we talk about, um, we've spoken about Dimitrov sort of understanding his own game better. I think Dimonor is understanding his game and when to counterpunch and defend versus when to attack more. And he's getting so much more out of his serve. He's just He's just a way better player than he used to be. And I just think that's... Worth noting, like he's he's mm. doing his service doing so, so improved. Well. It is he, so improved. Like again, he was. I think he lost the um, he lost the baseline rallies against Rublev. And if if you'd said, how does Alex Dimonor win tennis matches if he's not winning the baseline rallies? A couple of years ago, you, you just wouldn't have thought it possible. But he's getting cheap points now, and and I think that emboldens him to be a bit more aggressive with his with the rest of his game, right? The fact that he's getting more cheap points, I think, makes him feel like he can take a few more risks. Yeah, and he's got he's got a lovely slice backhand as well. Like It's really good from Alex Dimonor right now. And yeah, I've, look, I've put off talking about Talon Greekspor long enough. Um, just, he, he, he had a good week. <laughs> like, he's really good at home. And he's the ma- really good in the Netherlands. He's got, a, I think he's won... 14 of his last 16 matches at home and, and the two losses have been to Yannick Sinner in Dutch the Rotterdam semis. Dutch players are good at home, aren't they? Remember Tim van Rijthoven? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, and Rotterdam is a fantastic tournament. It is. It's got, what is it, decades of, of history. I, I first went there in 2002. You know, it's 22 years ago. It already been going about 30 years at that <laughs> point. Um, but... I, I I think it, they are super motivated to play well at home, and the conditions I think suit their game. It's it's what they come up playing on a lot of the time. Um, the scorelines mm. of those first two matches were what made me think, oh, Talon Greekspor is absolutely absolutely somebody we should talk about here. I mean, they're incredible. It, it was seven six in the third against both Mazzetti, and then he beat Hercatch, didn't yeah. he? And Hercatch indoors is like a nightmare. With both are set down, and both of them seven six seven six after that. Yeah, um, I, I I was a little bit. I was expecting more from him in a way in the semi-final and that might sound incredibly harsh because he's playing Yannick Sinner but I didn't think he quite brought it in that semi-final. I, was, I really thought that would be a tough match for Sinner and Sinner kind of really took care of him easily. 
Um, but yeah, no, he's done. He's, he's had a good week there, and kind of unfortunately for him, he got to the, got to the semis last year, as I said. So he hasn't actually sort of gained a load of points. It almost feels like he's put in he's put in a lot there. He's beaten Herkach, and he's not actually going to gain loads in the ranking. Like he needs to needs to keep doing it elsewhere. That must be such a bummer for a tennis player, oh, feeling like so. you've had an all time week and all you've done is stood still. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still don't feel like I completely know what he is as a player yet, and yet sometimes he can get good wins. Um, but uh, no, I, 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 I'd like to see. Is it? It's a bit. It's not quite Hugo Gaston outside of France, <laughs> but I want to see him go elsewhere and do it now outside of Paris. <laughs> One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or on your smart TV in HD. Sounds great. There's genuinely nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere. And can I just sit and watch court shows in Longland all day? You sure can, David. Wherever the stories are, the rivalries emerge and the generations clash, you can watch it all with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Be there when it happens by subscribing to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Now, speaking of great weeks on home soil, how about Facundo Diaz Acosta, who has won the Buenos Aires title and he's only done it the hard way by beating Nicholas Jarry in the final. 6-3, 6-4 Jarry, following up from the biggest win of his career over Carlos Alcaraz in the semi-final. Couldn't back it up in the final. It's a tight turnaround, isn't it? Kind of emotionally and physically, but... Diaz Acosta, I had a message from from my dad whilst watching this final and it was vibe central, this final. It was, a lot of people would have tuned in, sorry Matt and gone, who the hell are these two? But I think very quickly, just just the vibes and the atmosphere would have, would have pulled you in and quite honestly it's a sort of the sort of match where if if you didn't have the vibes in the atmosphere a lot of people would just turn off but it just reeled you in with such a great watch um and Matt my my dad is dying for all the information you have on Facundo Diaz Acosta and I'm sure he's not alone <laughs> yeah it's it's it, it's amazing how like I don't think tennis makes the most of its south american swing i don't you know i think there should be a masters 1000 there but 
South America makes the most of the tennis that it's got. Like they show up for all these events and the atmospheres are brilliant. And, you know, David was describing the Cordoba final last week and, you know, that was by no means household names in that two qualifiers and yet amazing scenes. And and here in, in Buenos Aires as well, even without um, Carlos Alcaraz, they had this kind of the enemy was Nicolas Jarry from Chile against the home favourite, um, Facunda Diaz Acosta. And it, it was fantastic. And honestly, he came to my attention for the first time at the Australian Open this year because he played Taylor Fritz in the first round. And that was a five-setter. And I, I remember at the time, we talked a lot about Taylor Fritz. You know, it was we saw that match from his perspective and how he has all these problems in the first round of, of Grand Slams and... You know, other other top players won't get themselves involved in a five-setter against Facundo Diaz Acosta. And we were probably a little dismissive. And yet I went back to read um, Taylor Fritz's transcript after that match. And he was telling everyone, watch out for this guy, Diaz Acosta. Just just going to read what he, what he said. He said, a lot of people are going to look at that score and think that I'm out of form and not playing great. But there needs to be some respect given to this guy. He's really good, honestly. I told him that at the net. I shook his hand and I said, you're really effing good. (laughs) He was returning serves that I feel like nobody else, unless they full-on guess, would return. He wasn't even picking sides. I was hitting bombs and he was returning them. I've never seen anything like it. So, like, really high praise there from Taylor Fritz. And, you know, he's he's got a wild card into this event, Diaz Acosta, and... It's just an incredibly impressive run to the title. He's beaten Altmaier, who beat Sinner at the French Open last year. He's beaten Francisco Sarundolo, who is a you know top 30, very good clay court player. The best Sarundolo. By far. <laughs> Who's having a tough year, by the way. He is, Did you see that heartfelt post he put yeah. out about what a tough time he's having? Yeah. He's, he's not peak Sarundolo at the moment. But, but it's, still, it's still, still a good, a good win. win, yeah. L- Lajevic. Very good clay court player. Mm. Pushed Alcaraz on, on clay a lot last year. Correa, not the best Correa, <laughs> admittedly. But he but was on a run. Still a good clay quarter. Yeah. And then Nicholas Jarry, who is, you know, fresh off beating Carlos Alcaraz. And he's beaten them all in straight sets. And look, Nicholas Jarry did not play well in that final at all. But... It was Love 40 had on, in the very first game, Jerry had Love 40 on uh, Diaz Acosta's serve. And I thought, wow, Diaz Acosta playing his first final in front of his home crowd. This is going to be kind of tough for him. But he got through that service game. And after that, it looked like he was sort of born to play these sorts of events. You know, he was was lapping up the crowd. He made Jerry look slow and lumbering. And he was was reading, reading the play. And it was a, a real effort to get over the line. I think it took him six match points to to get there eventually, and it was still pretty nip and tuck. But honestly, what a story. He'd only had two ATP wins before, and he gets five in a week and, and wins his first title. Like, pretty, pretty special scenes, because as I said, he's from Buenos Aires as well, and the crowd are really appreciating it. And yeah, there's just, just so much heart and soul in these events, and um, he was... He was providing a lot of that. It was, it was special scenes. Yeah, because he, he's not out of nowhere, is he? He's been he's twenty three. Mm. He's I mean he's been a challenger player basically, um, and this propels him. It kind of leaps it leap 
leapfrogs him over the nether zone, doesn't it? If sort of deciding whether to play challenges or try and play qualifying for the for the bigger ATP events. He should be getting direct entry now inside the world's top 60 uh, for a while at least into into the bigger events. And yeah, we always talk about that, that sort of, that black hole zone um, that you can get stuck in sort of 80 to 120 in the world-ish. Um, but he's kind of through that tunnel now um, and he's got a platform to work with so we'll see yeah like no one's gonna want him to be unseeded at the french open and and you run into him in in the first or second round as like a top yeah player. he's one of those players that every all the top players will be willing on like get inside the world's top 32 please because yeah. i don't want to draw you yeah definitely taylor fritz <laughs> is thinking that um <laughs> Now then, Nicholas Jarry's defeat of Carlos Alcaraz in the semi-finals. First of all, Matt Roberts, your floor to talk about Nicholas Jarry. <laughs> Someone tweeted me saying this match is so Matt Roberts coded because it was <laughs> Jarry Alcaraz, and I was like, yes. Um, look, Jarry, who actually we'd sort of been talking about and, and slightly joking, actually hadn't had a brilliant start to the season. Like I, I didn't actually think he was playing all that well and even his prior wins it was 7-6 in the third against Wawrinka and then he got through via retirement from Echeverry in, in the previous round like I didn't see this performance coming but he was brilliant against Carlos Alcaraz it's, it's such an interesting approach to clay court tennis because it's it's big serving you know hitting the lines with that serve big flat hits trying to come forward as much as he can it's not it's not your typical clay court style but I love the way he imposes himself and he did he did show little bits of nice dexterity and good movement and hand skills and look he was he was brilliant and I think he handled it well because the crowd were desperate for Alcaraz to win and they were doing their absolute best to pull Alcaraz back into this match and there were little moments towards the end where Jay was getting a bit tight and double faulted all match and then trying to serve it out he double faults twice and you're thinking oh Oh Nicholas, don't do this. But he but he held it together and but sort of the other side of it was this was not good from from Carlos Alcaraz. This it was... wasn't good from Carlos Alcaraz. It really was and it was you know, not in such a, a dramatic way as against Verev at the Australian Open, but it was the same sort of flavour of performance, just looking a bit clueless as to what to do like if it's not there for him it's like he's he's just sort of waiting for it to come not that makes him sound passive I mean obviously he's trying his heart out but is he trying with a plan is he I, I it just it all looks looks listless and a bit dumb like it just looks a bit like what's your plan Carlos <laughs> um and look he's 20 years old he's figuring it out he's so bloody good I'm 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 quite sure he will but I just I don't know it's a bit disconcerting seeing him like that and I just I do just worry that he's such an instinctive tennis player and like not ev- not as we talked about after the Zverev match at the Australian Open some players are more tactical than others like there's different brands of tennis he's a very very, very instinctive tennis player. He goes, he, he feels things on the court and his instincts are in, incredible. A lot of people have to play more 
patterned meat and potato style tennis because they don't have the instincts that Carlos Alcaraz has. That's a wonderful thing. It's one of the things we like about him. But I just worry about him if he keeps suffering setbacks and losses and he his trust in those instincts starts to waver. I worry where that leaves him. I just think he he needs to have conviction in his whole body to be able to play the type of tennis that he plays. And I just, I worry about these wounds accumulating and what that does to the particular type of tennis he plays. Hmm. I think it's a fair point. Uh, The word reliable is not a very sexy tennis word, but that's what Yannick Sinner is, and it's bloody effective. And and I'm afraid from Alcaraz's perspective, his game doesn't feel very reliable at the moment. You don't really know what's coming from it from one game to the next. And he is the most exciting player in the world for me, um, but that isn't a recipe for guaranteed success all the time. Um, And uh, and he's going to have to work some stuff out, I I think. Have you, have either of you ever seen such a a big gap between floor and ceiling in a Grand Slam champion? Ostapenko. <laughs> Touche, Matt. That's very good. Touche. Yeah, there's there aren't there aren't many uh that that have just completely won a Grand Slam taken it by storm. Now he's better than that because he's done it twice and he's faced down Novak Djokovic at Wimbledon and outlasted him and done it there. So he's clearly got got it. He's not just coming out blitzing people and and that that being that. But I, I'd be very interested to know. I actually thought about trying to do it as a bit of research for this particular podcast, but but certainly one for the future. I didn't have time for this one to speak to some coaches, probably off the record, and find out are the things that the locker room is starting to learn about how to take this guy on. Because he didn't suffer these sort of losses in the first year that he really came to prominence. When he when he nearly beat Berrettini at the Australian, when he won Madrid, when he won Miami, when he came into the French Open feeling like the favourite in many ways. Um, the, at the, in that spring, two years ago, these sort of defeats weren't really happening. Um, and, and I just feel like maybe that's people have started to think, oh, do you know what you need to do against Alcaraz? It's this. Mm. And maybe they all know. And and I and I still think he's going to end up figuring ways out to overcome that. But 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 I wonder whether that is a thing. And I do think if you look at his recent losses, there has been a little trend of sort of game style wise. Like Zverev is not that different to Jerry in terms of like they were both hitting big and hard up the middle. Um, and I think Safulin beat him last year as well, didn't he, towards the end of the year? Like, he's a big ball striker as well. And I remember when Djokovic played Alcaraz at the ATP Finals, he was going big on his forehand. Like, I think I think rushing Alcaraz is, is something that you can do right now. Um, the slow starts are a, a real trend. Like, that's a problem for Alcaraz mm. right now. And, and he, he sort of spoke about it after after the match in his press conference and he was talking about it in terms of his concentration. He thinks his concentration is a problem on court right now. And he says it has been for a little while. And 
it's not like he's he, he's losing these matches without showing any glimpses at all. Like I can point to all these losses, and there've been little moments of Alcaraz Alcarazing in in all of them. Even against Jerry, he did a, he did a remarkable lob at one point, and a, and a remarkable sort of forehand volley winner from the baseline that just no one else would play that shot and he hit it for a winner and you think that's that's what you know is he's capable of but as you said being able to play more reliable tennis would be sort of perhaps more efficient at this stage but like he's so good and he has he has so much runway ahead of him like I remain not worried about Carlos Alcaraz long term. I, I like I genuinely think this is just a period in his career that he's going through and I think he's I think he's gonna win so many more big tournaments. Um but I do wonder whether you know whether he's so ravenous and he's so he's got such high expectations of himself and in a way that's one of his greatest strengths, isn't it? But I do think maybe Maybe he does need to be a little bit more methodical and reliable and think one tournament at a time rather than... Talking about world number one right? <laughs> every five minutes. You know, and, and that's... He's like, gone back to his he, old haircut, hasn't he? Maybe that's the start of the back-to-basics I like that. energy. He's, we get so excited about his game. I think he gets excited about his own game and his own <laughs> potential. And it, it's almost like you want to you keep that and bottle that, but also rein it in in mm. in a way and look he's basically got the same draw in in Rio this week it's it's all the same it's players it's sort of the same to- it's like Adelaide 1 and 2 <laughs> yeah. all over again except it's it is two different countries yeah, and it's, cities it's, it's now a 500 it's now in Rio but it's it's like put that behind you Carlos and go and play go and play that tournament again but in Rio this time and look if it keeps happening I suppose I will have to eventually get concerned but right now I think Personally, I'm I'm still on board the the Alcaraz hype train. I mean, I think we all are. Not too much time left to talk about Delray Beach, but um, no matter really because uh, the final has not yet been played. As we record this at five p.m. UK time on Monday, uh, Delray Beach has had to postpone its final due to rain torrential rain they made a very early call in Delray Beach they obviously saw an extremely threatening looking uh, weather radar and decided there was zero prospect to getting the final played and they made a very bold and I think very good early decisive call to cancel this final postpone it till Monday between Taylor Fritz and uh, Tommy Paul Tommy Paul going for the uh, the Dallas Delray double um so we'll we'll cover that one in next week's show I think the only the only thing I think perhaps we should pick up on from Delray Beach is um is Francis Tiafo he lost out to Tommy Paul uh a match I watched and I was I was really quite shocked at how bad Francis Tiafo was and I didn't go in with brilliantly high expectations I was tuning into that because I wanted you know I was feeling a bit weird about where Francis Tiafo is at right now um and I wasn't necessarily expecting him to win that match you know playing against a guy extremely high on confidence on a role in um in Tommy Paul but I think you watched it as well Matt didn't you it was the nature of the loss it was it was bad from from Francis Tiafo. I mean, it's it, like, t- 
to think the vibes that he was emitting into the world 18 months ago, you just, I remember interviewing him on the eve of Queens last year and he just wanted to be in his orbit somehow. It feels like maybe being in his orbit just now is is pretty tough, actually. And I know, look, he's got that famously unorthodox technique, hasn't he? Which, when it's not going well, is going to look kind of particularly scratchy, I think, because it's not... I mean, I actually find it really compelling to watch that technique and how effective it can be, but it is, you know, it's not typically beautiful. And when it's bad, it it looks bad, but it's more just the the energy around him. I feel like his aura has changed colour and not in a good way. If he was wearing one of those mood rings that... <laughs> Matt probably doesn't know about because that's a reference from like the 90s. Do you remember the mood rings, David? Can't say I do. <laughs> they ch- supposedly changed colour to indicate your mood, but actually they were, I think they were just heat, <laughs> oh. heat sensitive. But yeah, I feel like his mood ring is a is a murky colour right now. Yeah, like how can it be the same guy who we saw at the US Open a couple of years ago? Like the most electric guy in tennis at the time certainly in new york and i mean he is at this slightly odd stage in his career where the adulation and the attention that he has received isn't matched by his resume you know he's he's getting huge amounts of attention and endorsements and he's big part of breakpoint and all that and yet he will know himself that he hasn't sort of achieve the things that would necessarily get you that level of stardom I suppose and there is just this slight discrepancy and look he's it's been rough for a while I must say I tuned into this match I wasn't shocked by Tiafo's level like that's the Tiafo now that I've come to expect and yeah it's it's really tough he's got this curiously bad record as well against fellow Americans he's lost his last six against Fritz his last three against Paul he lost that US Open quarterfinal to Shelton. He lost to Garone last week in Dallas. He lost his last match to Corder. Like, he, for the guy who's meant to be kind of certainly the most exhilarating and exciting out of that crop of Americans who are his age, you know, Apelka, Paul, and Fritz, you know, Tiafo's the, he's the vibes guy, isn't he? When he comes up against them, he's he's struggling. And yeah, it's it's really tough. He's obviously split with Wayne Ferreira at the end of the year. Mm. We've gone back to a coach that he used to work with during his USTA days. Yeah, like mm, really tough, tough right now. Uh, speaking of coaching splits, Tom Hill and Maria Sakkari are no more. Um, some some very heartfelt Instagram posts from them. They've always, obviously had a tremendous amount of success together and their their coaching partnership was covered a lot wasn't it in in series one of, of breakpoint in particular and you know it's clear the the respect and affection that they have for one another and um the comfort zone they created together and i know there's a lot to be said for that but equally my interpretation from the outside was that perhaps the line between uh comfort zone and and codependence was was being crossed and look I I want Maria Sakkari to 
to get the best out of her career. I desperately do want the best for her because I know how much she wants it. Um, and I, look, this might end up not being a productive decision. It might not lead to better results. I don't know, but I do think she has to try and see. I think it's the right decision at this stage of her career for her to do something bold and take a risk. Yeah, I I, I think so too. And, and it kind of the same feeling I had a week ago when we were talking about Jessica Pagula finishing with David Witt. That one came out of the blue a bit. But when you think of the record, they're, they're not going to retire right now quite with what they would want to have achieved. E- even though I think certainly Pagula has, has actually done better than maybe people thought she would as a younger player. Zachary, I think there's been more hype over. There's been more expectation. And, and they've both had success. But I f- don't think that they would retire happy with what they've done yet. And unless you turn that stone over and try something else, how are you going to know? And Pagula, incidentally, is um, we've heard this week that she's been doing with some work with uh, Andy Roddick, like um, Coco Goff did on her serve in the off season. So Andy Roddick is now a sort of jobbing consultant coach, <laughs> David. If well, you if you need some tips, yeah, yes, how uh, to get the serve Andy, over the net? Come and help. Um, Andy, was, my serve is bouncing before the net. What do I do? Something that he yes, was um, he was talking about on his podcast last week, and and he. He actually said that it was... He's not promoting our podcast. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> I mean, he he actually... he's He said that it's Lindsay Davenport who is um, sparking all of these conversations because she's now the Billie Jean. I was trying to think, what? Well, how is she involved? And then, of course, she's the Billie Jean King mm. Cup captain and she's out there for all the American players. And she's just sending these players the way of Andy Roddick, <laughs> who, who I think is just chuffed, really, to be to be back involved and and not have to do it in a kind of traveling way and all these sort of things and no and it's non-committal it's just sort of I'm here if you want to tap into any thoughts I may have and well what a what a great resource to be able to tap into you'd have thought mm, absolutely and, and it is interesting now that David Witt is available mm. as a coach like and he, you know obviously very successful stint with Pagula I think Tom Hill, it will be interesting. He's much younger, isn't he? Like, that felt like, you know, he obviously had that uh, relationship with Zachary, but, you know, how will that transfer to other players? But I think David Witt feels like he is now on the market for someone to, to take him as a coach. And he's shown, you know, incredible loyalty to his to his two players, really, Venus Williams and Jessica Bagula. But, mm. like, he's done really good things. So it would be interesting to see if... If Zachary goes there, I have no idea. And in other Greek news, it feels a long time. Sorry to do this to you, Matt, but it feels a very long time ago that you were making a big Greek prediction, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> never going to live that one down. In the, same, in the same week that the Zachary Tom Hill split news came out, Stefanos Tsitsipas has dropped out of the world's top 10 uh, for the first time since 2019. And this means that there is no single-handed backhand in the ATP top 10 for the first time ever. Which is wild. What, what's, what's bigger, Sitsipas dropping out of the top 10 or there being no single-hander? I mean, for, for tennis as a whole, I think the fact that there's no single-hander... It, it, should, it, should, perhaps, years. it should perhaps yeah. be noted that... Um, there was a world in which Dimitrov 
entered the top 10 yeah. this week, wasn't there? Like, we were only, I think, it one was, match away. That was from... a lot for Grigor, wasn't it? Like, <laughs> the whole of the single-handed backhand community is resting on your shoulders. He was part of a band called the One-Handed Backhand Boys. Need, yeah. Oh, God, he was. He doesn't need more pressure. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we were... The future of this shot is in your hands. We were, in fact, we were one Grigor Dimitrov win away, I think, from... Matt's tremendous newsletter stat this week not not being a thing. Sort of. Sort of. Mine's about year-end top tens. Okay. So we're not there yet. So it would yet. still have worked. And, and the thing about Sitsipas is that, like, absolutely incredible streak he's had of being consistent in the top ten. I, I think that I think we can overlook that, but that's a long time of consistency. And yet, it feels like he's... He's so good that he shouldn't be falling outside of the top 10. Like it, it does, it feels like something's gone dramatically wrong for him to be in this position. And as we know, like it hasn't been a good year. Um, and I suppose the, I suppose the one handed backhand thing is like, this is, this is the tipping point of, this has been coming for years. Like it goes down the levels, doesn't it? People are no longer coaching the one-handed backhand quite so much as the two-hander. And there are so many more advantages in the modern game of, of the two-handed backhand. We've seen it in the women's game, you know, that, that the one-handed backhand is, is almost non-existent now at, at the top of the sport. And yeah, there aren't that many young players with one-handed backhands. Like perhaps it's, perhaps it's resting on Denis Shapovalov and Lorenzo Mazzetti, in which case... Well, <laughs> might be in trouble. But, but like, oh, I wish listeners could see the face that Matt just just <laughs> he, did in that. He pause. Did those grinding teeth emoji. <laughs> uh, I know that. But I do think Sixpass um, will probably get back in the top ten. I did ask Tim Hemman whether he would coach a, a, mm. any young player now to have a one-handed backhand. And he said absolutely not. And I think and Federer I think Federer has said the, the same. Saying that really, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nails, nails in coffins. Other couple of bits of news. Australian Open is considering a Sunday women's final. That is, uh, that's Billie Jean just mounting David there. That's the, <laughs> those are the sounds you can hear. Uh, the ITIA has reduced the suspension period of Jensen Brooksby to 13 months. It was previously at 18 months. That's due to new information. So his suspension will end on March the 3rd twenty of, of this year, 2024. Um, and Samina Halep has had her hearing, hasn't she? And we await the news from that. Uh, in terms of the men's events this week, as I said, the women are in Dubai. The men are in Rio with uh, as Matt was saying, the same field as they had in Buenos Aires pretty much last week. Uh, they're also in Doha, 250 event there. Nadal is out. He had planned to play in Doha. He's out, but he hopes to be ready for Indian Wells. Uh, you've also got Rublev, Hashinov, uh, Bublik and Andy Murray playing in Doha. And we've got ATP Los Cabos this week as well with uh, Sitsabas, Verev, Dimonor, Kasper Ruud, Jack Draper and Dan Evans playing possibility of a Draper-Evans second round. Oh, yeah. Big yes, please to that. And that's your lot for this week in the tennis world, except to tell you about our mascot, Bowie, or potentially Bowie. And I think both, both, both are true. Do you say Bowie or Bowie? That's a very good question. That's very Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury, isn't it? <laughs> um, I, I, I've always said David Bowie. I say Me Bowie. too. Okay, great. Let's go Bowie. Bowie is owned by Heather Day. Bowie's a rescue and honestly, I know you 
say every week I say oh that's a nice dog but this is a <laughs> really <laughs> really lovely dog uh, Bowie's <laughs> mum was rescued in Texas when she was pregnant and soon after she had 12 puppies thoughts and prayers with Bowie's mum uh, Bowie and three other puppies were flown to Seattle to be adopted in the summer of 2021 when they were 10 weeks old he's very much a pandemic inspired adoption uh, I feel you Heather uh, I've got a pandemic inspired adoption currently flirting with David to my left and they're all great (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and uh, he's a much needed companion to Henry our only child says Heather who was six years old and had begged us for a dog forever Bowie is part lab part red healer which gives him his lovely freckles he's he's clever takes the lead on walks he knows where he wants to go loves treats and playing with other dogs and Henry is his best friend and that is absolutely lovely he is beautiful what a good boy uh, and i will pop a picture of him on our instagram and matt will pop in in our newsletter and do subscribe to the newsletter matt's stat this week is a belter we have our mascots i have the dearly departed darwin and my plan for this week was to go for guaranteed points in in honor and memory of darwin so i went for carlos alcaraz to win buenos aires and obviously i was tremendously let down by both Carlos Alcaraz and Nicholas Jarry. Uh, but as in the words of Matt on the WhatsApp group, maybe that is actually an even more fitting tribute to Darwin to try and fail to get points. So <laughs> there we are. Sorry oh. about that. Uh, David has Francis and Matt has Haida and Soma. Billy Jean is really living her best life right now. She's sponsored by Billie Jean King and Ilana Kloss. We have top folks and executive producers, and they are Greg, Chris, Jamie, and Jeff. And Matt, we have shout-outs. We have Rachel Knowlton in Ipswich, Massachusetts. Hi, Rachel. Hello, Rachel. There's another Ipswich. <laughs> My thoughts exactly. <laughs> wow. Hmm. <laughs> I, think I was just about two. to say home <laughs> of the tractor boys, uh, but but no. Um, well, Matt and I have driven through Massachusetts. Yep. And Rachel, Catherine, has a Bernese mountain dog. <gasps> Rachel. Send that we named Rafa, she says. Oh. Send pictures, Rachel. Send pictures <laughs> urgently. <laughs> Thank you very much. We've also got Jasper Vandendriescher. Hello. Jasper. Jasper says, I bet Catherine will be the best one to pronounce my family name since she is an expert in pronouncing Dutch names. I was going to say, oh, in our Rotterdam Review show as well. How per- <laughs> perfect. Although actually Jasper is from Brussels in Belgium. Okay, so Flemish. Yes. Okay. Jasper, could I hear it again, please, Matt? Jasper. Uh, Van- Vandendriescher. Is my attempt. Vandendriesche. That's what I'm going for. It was a bit German, German wasn't it? Something quite good, that's, really. That's what I'm going for. Thank you, Jasper. And finally, we have Layla. Layla! And no, I'm not going to sing. <laughs> <laughs> but it might be the Layla. Wow. Because all we've got is this spelling. Layla, you got No, me all we've leave, got is Layla. Please. But it is different spelling. But I think we had that before. <laughs> There was a whole spelling situation. Matt looks really panicked right now. Matt is the look of a man who's worried someone's going to make him sing. Layla, thank you ever so much. You've given us an excuse to um, to dig out the incredible uh, edit.
Backer number 262. Just Layla. Just Layla. Like the song. No, not like the song. Spelled differently. Thanks, Layla. What song's that? Um, Sing it. Is it? Uh, <laughs> you think you've Lila? You think you've Lila by Oasis? No, no. Um, Layla, you got me on my knees, Layla. Oh yes. It's the first time I've ever heard Matt sing. It is. What a note to finish <laughs> on. Oh God. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.